I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Habakkuk, to the third chapter of that prophet, where we'll conclude this series of sermons not only in Habakkuk, but in the uh, triad of minor prophets who were contemporaries during uh, those days between Israel's downfall and Judah's uh, exile, Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk. We come this morning to a confession of faith that I think should really take our breath away. We're coming this morning to the zenith of the mountain, to the culmination in this holy trek that we have taken through the forest of affliction. And here, out of pain and trial, we, through Habakkuk's hands and eyes, reach out for and behold heaven from the darkness below. Listen as with virtually the same breath, Habakkuk writhes with pain and rejoices with great joy before the face of God and our God as well. But first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words uh, thousands of years ago on your prophet's heart and lips and pen, will also be here and will illumine us to receive your word and not to be hearers only but doers of it as well. For we ask it for your glory, Father. Work powerfully by your word as you always do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, we'll pick up at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. I must confess that it was precisely here that I wanted to come with you several months ago when we started this entire series. At that time that we started with Nahum and Zephaniah, there were some terrible afflictions being suffered in this congregation, and I wanted more than anything else to apply the balm of God's word, not only privately, but publicly from the pulpit as well. Well, those afflictions, many of them have come and, and even gone, and I must say, you have suffered them well, and you have improved them well. But in a fallen world such as ours, a new set of afflictions comes to visit after another. Indeed, I have little doubt that there are some here even this very morning 
who are carrying, even secretly in their hearts, some aching, some struggle with burden of sadness or grief or concern. There always are, you know, until the coming of that day when the scripture says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Even if you are not grieved this morning, the days of grief and affliction will come. How then shall we receive these afflictions and how shall we respond to them? I've seen, and you have too, how people generally respond to hardship. They're really not all that difficult to class. One way, you know, is the way of bravado. When the phone rings and the terrible news comes, or perhaps some things slowly fall apart all around him or her, the way of bravado puts on a face, a brave face of defiance and and self-sufficiency. Of course, as I say, it is a face, it is a facade, really, that serves only as a mask, that only buries the hurt, the pain, the uncertainty, the grief. I'm okay. It'll be all right. Just hang in there. It'll all work out in the end. Some of the words of bravery behind which hide the frightened and confused child. Another way of responding to fearful things and difficult things is by resignation. Oh, well, no use crying over spilled milk. That's just the way the ball bounces. It's another mask, isn't it? Another way of of building a wall of words that thinly veil a broken heart. Now, it's better than lashing out, I suppose, but it certainly is not what we're taught in the Scriptures. Sometimes this approach is called stoicism. Yet a third way that people respond to hardship is the way of detachment. Just act like it's not happening. And hopefully it'll just all sort of somehow go away. Now this third way has set a good chunk of our culture in search of pills and medications that help ease the pain by sending the memory out for a day at the beach. Lest depression and grief come to camp. It also helps to account for an entire culture that abhors silence, that must always have the television on, always be listening to the radio, not for news, but for fantasy, for another escape from reality. There is another way. There is another way. It is the biblical way, a way, in fact, that is woven right into the warp and woof of the entire Scripture. It is not to react by running, nor by resigning, but by rejoicing. Rejoicing. It is to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Impossible. Oh, really? You haven't met Paul the Apostle? Or Silas? Maybe today is the first time that you've met Habakkuk and found him rejoicing under fire, joyful under the terrible burden that has been laid on him. 
And perhaps you haven't met that entire line of saints from before and after Christ who have encountered affliction the likes of which most of us in this room have never known and conquered those afflictions and did so, endured them, rejoicing. I don't know what some of you in this room are facing right now, the sort of pain that has been visited on you. Perhaps you've got some hidden grief that you are bearing. I don't know. Others of you I do know quite well, though not perhaps fully by personal experience. But this I do know, first and foremost from the Scripture, and second by observing some of you over these years in your afflictions and observing you in your griefs. It is entirely possible to rejoice in affliction. Take a look at it with me. But first, let us make this first point. Affliction is real. And affliction is terrible. Let us learn this and remember it carefully, especially when counseling others. Affliction, even for the most mature Christian, is still terrible and still frightening even, for a brief time in many instances, debilitating. Take the affliction described by Habakkuk here. He's, he's using poetic terms to describe it, of course, but they are also intensely powerful images for anyone who has lived like Habakkuk did in an agrarian community and comes to and understands the devastation described in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. He starts with the luxuries, we might say, with the figs and the fruits. It might be possible to get by, perhaps fairly well, without the figs, though life without them would certainly be significantly different in Israel. But take away the olives, then strip the fields of crops, and take the animals from the fold and stall, and what you have is starvation and death and terror. We read these lines and think them quaint, and indeed they are skillful poetry, spirit-inspired, but read them in their original context, and you will not think them merely so. These are powerful images of affliction that Habakkuk knows is coming. This is starvation. This is mass panic. This is the end of life as they know it. And what is more... These indicate more than just agrarian afflictions that are to come. Habakkuk walks the streets of Jerusalem. He looks on the faces of the children running about his feet amidst the beautiful young virgins helping their mothers, infants crying at their mother's breasts, young men busily working and leading their flocks, or all the rest of it, knowing, seeing in his mind's eye the raping, the killing, the fire the demolition, the destruction, and the captivity to come. Just a verse before, he's described his own reaction to the vision of the God, of the, that God has given to him of the things that are soon to come. His body trembles. His lips quiver. 
Rottenness enters into his bones and his legs tremble beneath him. Has your body ever trembled at the news, at some terrible news, or your lips quiver? Has affliction ever visited you like a blow to the solar plexus and sent you to your seat? I know it has for some of you because I've been there. They, then aren't you glad, brothers and sisters, for the truthfulness of the scripture and for the genuineness of the saints recorded therein? These are no fictional characters from a John Wayne movie, untouched and untouchable, nor literary Pollyannas naively turning punishments into picnics. These are real men, real women, made of dust like we are, even the greatest of them. Here is Habakkuk quivering like a leaf in fear. Or Abraham cringing before the face of man. David, who says his flesh fails him. Habakkuk had another contemporary, Jeremiah, who was a man like him and had a dark message like he to deliver. And though, as the Lord puts it, the spirit was willing, the flesh was often weak and struggling. Or over here we find John the Baptist languishing in prison and his spirit deeply affected by his plight. Or the mighty Saint Paul struggling with fightings without and fearings within or confessing like no other pastor would ever dare to confess that he preaches in fear and in trembling. And in another context that he at times, this, this colossus, the Apostle Paul despairs even of life itself. He wasn't exaggerating, nor were any of the others. Affliction is real, it is terrible, and when it strikes it can seem like your life has come to an end, like there is no hope, like your legs are going to come out from under you, like your cheeks will never see a dry day again. I tell you, no one knows the taste of tears like Christians do. And to say any different would be a lie from the pit of hell itself. Let us be wise, Christians, and acknowledge this, even embrace it. Affliction is terrible, and there is nothing sinful about a saint trembling with fear or knocked down with grief or pouring out eyes, buckets of tears. But having acknowledged the reality of affliction, we must also remember and exercise, second, the certainty of our hope. As terrible, as indescribable as affliction can be to the saints, it cannot begin to chip away from the certain hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our strength is not from ourselves. It is not in our ability to, to look at the bright side or to see the silver lining. It is not our ability to re remedy the situation, whatever it may be, with words or with technology or with the power of positive thinking. The surety and certainty of the hope that we have is the one in whom and upon whom 
that hope is founded. Listen to Habakkuk and watch as he's transported here from fear to faith. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Several years ago, we were on vacation as a family on a short trip down to Lake Cumberland. We had to leave after one night because the cabin was so filled with vermin. But I wasn't going to leave until I got my fishing line wet. And so early in the morning, I made my way out of the cabin just at the dusk, uh, at dawn of the day. And down a virtually vertical drop through the bushes and the trees, most of it on the seat of my pants, until I found myself standing on the sharp rocks that jut out, as some of you know, over Lake Cumberland. Maybe three casts later and about six dollars worth of lures gone, it began to rain. I turned around and saw that our cabin had disappeared from my view. And I began to wonder how I possibly made it down that bank without breaking my neck. But there was only one way back. I broke down my fishing pole and jammed it into my back pocket, sticking up over the back of my head. By now that orange dirt had become slippery clay and with every step I wrapped my fingers around a handful of brush or weeds that looked like it had deep enough roots to hold me. My pole getting hung up in every tree over my head. I found myself clawing my way up wondering if I'll ever make it back to the cabin that I couldn't even see. And suddenly I looked up and I was staring virtually face to face at a very large deer. We exchanged some pleasantries and the deer turned around and skipped up that hill like he was tiptoeing through the tulips and left me standing there mud-covered, clinging to brush in the rain. Sometimes our afflictions seem like we're slogging our way uphill in the mud on our knees, sometimes in our face, clinging and clawing and wondering if it will ever end and if I will ever make it. But then God comes to us in our weakness and he picks us up and he gives us feet like the deer's, nimble and certain strong. He raises us up from the mud and he makes of us clods, graceful deer who master the land given us in the high places. Only remember, Christians, that it is he who does this, not we. It is God's grace that visits us, that transforms us, his strength that is made perfect in our weakness. It really has nothing to do at all with your circumstances. Not one bit. 
we may be beaten down and destitute and despairing. As Paul, we may despair even of our lives. It has nothing to do with those things that we are facing in our lives, how things are faring, what events, what tragedies we are facing. It has nothing to do with your ability to think positively or to stir up your emotions or to perfect sharp reasoning in this situation. Listen, emotions are fickle and reasoning is feeble. But the power of God at work in a man and a woman and a boy and a girl and indeed in all of history from the nail to the horseshoe from the rider to the war now that is what makes our hope certain and sure altogether that is what makes our feet like the deers in the high places and this God we may say we have back example to say it this God is my God. Verse 18, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on the high places. He wouldn't dare to call the almighty creator of heaven and earth mine. Were it not for the scripture that does this in spades. And teaches us to do the same. The Lord is my shepherd, my rock, my savior, my God. Learn that word, Christians. That spirit-inspired first-person possessive pronoun. My. Mine. And fix it well into your lives. Say it often to yourself of your God, your Lord, your savior, your king, your father. Nothing else in all the world will help you to fix your hope through affliction than weaving this relationship into the very fabric of your soul. I am his, and he is mine. Once let that truth govern your heart and your mind, and the conditions of your life will begin to fade into the background like they did for Silas and for Paul, you remember, beaten and, and bludgeoned and locked in the filth of that prison. The concentration of thought and affection on my God, my Lord, my shepherd, set them singing even from the stocks of their affliction. They knew him, you see, as the as the personal and, and caring and loving and precious covenant-keeping God. And they knew that he cared for them as if they were the only two people on the face of the earth, which is the very way that he cares for you. With all of his love and all of his affection, he's not only your God, but you are his child. You belong to one another, and nothing can separate you from that love, neither height nor depth, neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. And so we can understand now, can't we, acknowledging the reality of affliction, 
but also and even more the certainty of our hope in Christ Jesus, your Lord, will lead inexorably to rejoicing. Third, this is why the saints go through their sojourns with affliction this way. This is the way I've seen many of you go, even through the trial in the teeth of that trial, from fear to faith to rejoicing in God, even through pain, even in the midst of that pain. I've seen you rejoice. I suppose I've told you before about Alan Gardner. We'll do well. We can hardly hear the story enough times if I have. In this terrible affliction, Alan Gardner rejoiced. He was an Anglican missionary in the 19th century to what was then Patagonia. We know it now as Tierra del Fuego, the island at the bottom of South America. He died in 1850, but he lived a very interesting life. He had served uh, from his boyhood in the British Navy, rising to the rank of commander. He was converted during one of his long sea voyages, and on it uh, filled with a love for man and an intense desire to give his life to reaching the lost which indeed he did. At the age of 40, he left the Navy in order to give himself to missionary work, first in South Africa and then eventually to South America. He tried to gain entrance through Paraguay and Bolivia, but the opposition of the Roman Catholic priests proved too great, and so he came to settle on Tierra, uh, uh, on Tierra del Fuego. With six companions, he started the work in 1850. Now, this is an inhospitable place, and it was a most severe uh, winter. The ship that was supposed to bring them their supplies never did, never did arrive, and slowly their crew died of starvation. Gardner was apparently the last one to die, and when the rescue party arrived, he was found lying dead on the shore next to an upturned boat. And there, where it had fallen from his hands was found his diary, recording the hardships that they had gone through. The hunger, the thirst, the wounds, and for him especially, the intense loneliness. But the last sentence, some words written in pencil, scarcely legible, before the dying hand could no longer write, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Having witnessed the death of his comrades, starved to death, this man ended rejoicing in the goodness of God. So can you. You also can rejoice regardless of your circumstances. Oh, but you say, I've already blown it. I've whined. I've complained. I've not rejoiced as I should. Ah, but you still can. And the fact is, there will be days when you will struggle to rejoice. And there will be days when rejoicing will come from your heart in unexpected, even surprising ways. And you will be delighted to find that if you begin small, just small, 
beginnings. One short phrase spoken to the Lord of praise and of gladness for him and who he is. And God will honor you with more. Who has, he will give more. He will give you that joy even when you begin with the smallest expressions of praise pressed from your heart by the vice of affliction. Our weak and dim eyes, said Samuel Rutherford, our weak and dim eyes look only at the dark side of the cross, that is the affliction or the trial. And this occasions our mistakes concerning it. They that can take it cheerfully on their backs shall find it just such a burden as wings to a bird or sails to a ship. I've become convinced from the scripture and from serving you as your pastor and spending time with you and considering my own life and experiences that our Christian lives in this world and this life must be a cycle of sorts. Like that of Habakkuk, suffering the blows of affliction, rising to rejoicing, suffering, rejoicing, and sometimes all of it all bundled up and wound up like a ball. William Cooper, the great hymn writer, suffered all of his life. One affliction after another, William Cooper faced, and a constant battle with depression. He was a great hymn writer, a great poet. We love to sing his hymns, and we live his life with him in part through them. But William Cooper, the Christian, was even suicidal at times, and often struggled with the darkness, even this fear that he in the end was going to be damned. He even went so far as to ask a driver one time to take him to a river where the driver supposed, as the story goes, he was expecting that Cooper would kill himself. Now he drove Cooper around in that misty dark of that night, and eventually, under the guise of being lost, he dropped Cooper back off at his front door. It was from the pen of Cooper that came these most anguished lines of English poetry inspired by the true story of a sailor who fell overboard in a violent storm and died despite the futile attempts and efforts of the crew to recover their friend. Here he is in writing of himself. No voice divine the storm allayed. No light propitious shone when snatched from all effectual aid we perished each alone but I beneath a rougher sea and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he Cooper was no less a Christian for penning those lines. It was a simple acknowledgement of the affliction that seemed at times to overwhelm him inside and out. We would be lying through our teeth to say that the children of God do not struggle like this. 
and even today and even in this congregation at times. But remember now, brothers and sisters, that this same William Cooper, who when he turned his eyes upon God, wrote this. Though vine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruit shall bear, Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks, nor herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Amen.